Let's open our Bibles together to Philippians chapter 2. So we're taking this brief break from our study of the book of Romans, considering the first 11 verses of Philippians 2. A few years ago, there was a 17-year-old girl in Maryland who wanted to join her high school's football team. The school was faced with a dilemma. They had to let her play or else her family was going to sue the school for her civil rights being violated to not be able to play on the boys' tackle football team. So the school let her play. And in the very first scrimmage, she got hurt. So the parents sued the school for $1.5 million, claiming that no one had warned them that she just might get injured playing tackle football with the boys, and they won $1.5 million. Amber Carson slipped on a spilled drink in a Philadelphia restaurant and broke a bone in the fall, and she sued the restaurant and won $113,000. Now, that might sound pretty reasonable. You slip on a spilled drink in a restaurant and you break a bone, except that the spilled drink was hers, and she hadn't really spilled it. She got into an argument with her boyfriend, threw her drink in his face, and got up to storm out of the restaurant and slipped on the drink she had just thrown. But who among us hasn't done that? <laughs> Kathleen Robertson of Texas was awarded $85,000 after breaking her ankle, tripping over a toddler who was running through a furniture store. We might think the parents of that toddler should be held responsible, except she was the parent of that toddler. It was her child she was letting run wild. But of course the store should have to pay. She's owed that money. Carl Truman, 19-year-old of Los Angeles, California, sued his neighbor for $75,000 and won. Actually, he sued for more than that, but he was awarded $75,000 because his neighbor had accidentally backed his car over his hand and broke his hand. He sued for more, but it was only given $75,000 because one of the jurors said, well, he was stealing the neighbor's hubcaps at the time. And the neighbor didn't know he was there when he backed over his hand, so maybe we should just give him the $75,000. But the audacity of that neighbor to back over his hand while he's harmlessly trying to steal his hubcaps secretly and he doesn't know he's there. In a tragic case, a man savagely clubbed his wife, fracturing her skull, severing her ear, leaving her partially deaf and damaged for the rest of her life. The judge decided that this abusive, murderous husband was insane temporarily at the time that he did this, and he was acquitted on those grounds and avoided going to prison. But the problem was his employer had fired him because of his violent crime. That was a big mistake. He sued them and won, claiming to be the victim of handicapped discrimination. They had to pay him $200,000 and rehire him but the $200,000 was for the emotional distress he went through as they victimized him for clubbing his wife nearly to death. There are many more cases we could talk about like this. Uh, they are entertaining uh, and terrifying and sad, the state of our country. We could go on and on, but the truth is people demand their rights. People demand what they think is coming to them, even when they are totally and ridiculously, as we've seen in some of these cases, in the wrong. They still feel entitled. 
They believe that they are owed something. They're, even though their so-called rights are totally illegitimate, even though their so-called rights are totally made up. But what we almost never hear about, and we could go on, we could take our whole time this morning and we would just be scratching the surface if all we did was tell these stories. And some of you are thinking, that would be fun, let's do that. We are here for the Word of God. How dare you? What we don't hear of, though, is, is someone who voluntarily, humbly gives up their rights, their legitimate rights for someone who is less deserving, who, who gives up their legitimate rights, not just for someone who's less deserving, but for someone who is totally undeserving, and that is exactly what Christmas is all about. The, the truth is self-exaltation, entitlement are the natural tendencies of the human heart. We're born that way. We don't have to, to be taught that, but at Christmas, we celebrate that Jesus did just the opposite of what our natural inclination is, to, to go for our own. Christ condescended an infinite distance, leaving behind realms of endless glory and joy to enter into our sin-infested world of grief and pain and suffering. He did so so that he might share his joy, his glory with us. He came, he humbled himself, he surrendered his rights, he shared in our suffering in order that he might rescue us from the condemnation that we actually deserved, that we actually earned, that we had coming to us. And Philippians 2 is this glorious description, beautiful description of our humble king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled himself and surrendered his rights, yet remains the highly exalted Lord of glory. And so we're actually in this passage given a rare look into eternity past at the Savior. And we're given a rare look into eternity future where every human being who has ever lived will acknowledge the deity of Christ, will acknowledge his reign, his rule, his lordship. And so let's, let's read together now, starting in verse 5. We're going to actually read all the way through verse 11, even though this morning we're just focused on verses 5 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord now from Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your supernatural, living, inerrant word. Thank you for this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us. Thank you that, that by your Spirit, through your Word, we can know you. We can hear the voice of our God, that, that dead hearts live and blinded eyes are made to see. That we who have been miraculously saved by you are transformed into the likeness of our Savior. And we pray, God, that you would do your good work by your Spirit through your Word this morning. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. James Montgomery Boyce describes this passage this way. He says, in these few verses, we see the great sweep of Christ's life. We are admitted to the breathtaking purposes of God. They teach the deity of Christ, his preexistence, his equality with God the Father, his genuine humanity, his voluntary death on the cross, the certainty of his ultimate triumph over evil, and the permanence of his reign. It's worth taking a moment to mention at the outset, as we have seen these, these, this glorious statement that Paul makes about the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that Paul is writing this within 30 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that is important for us to know because people try to rewrite history. Many claim that, that these, these claims of Jesus, his, his eternality, his preexistence, his, his godness, his God taking on human flesh, that he's not just some wandering prophet who was a good example for us in a tragic case of the government and those in power abusing someone. No, that he was the God-man, God in the flesh, that that. The, the claim is that these were claims that, that were made up centuries later, that Jesus never said that about himself, that the original disciples didn't, didn't believe that, that, that it's later Christian leaders who simply wanted to keep their positions of influence and power and wealth in place that came up with these wild claims about Jesus so that they could control people. That, friends, is what a lot of our kids are learning in college if the Bible is discussed there are many so-called intellectuals who promote this. The only problem is it's a lie. It's totally made up. It's easily falsifiable. If these are not hard claims to disprove, even though they're the prominent claims in the academic world and in the unbelieving world. They're easy to disprove. It's just that the unbelieving world doesn't care. This is, though, the apostles' teaching. This, this statement that Paul makes about Jesus, it began immediately following Jesus' death burial, resurrection, ascension. The reason it began then is because this is what Jesus had claimed about himself. So we need to keep that in mind. But Paul's ultimate goal here is not to deliver a theology lesson in saying this. He does do that. This is, this is glorious, rich, lofty theology, but his actual aim is to provide us with a lesson in humility, as we saw last week. He's been calling us, calling the, the Philippian Christians and calling us to remain united in humility. He's described what that humility looks like in verse 3 of chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so as, as Paul pleads with Christians to live in harmony, to live in unity, to lay aside their selfish desires and their personal rights and their pride and their desire to have everything their own way, he makes his final appeal by pointing to the greatest example of humility, the, the ultimate fulfillment of this call, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul points to the Lord Jesus as the greatest argument against selfishness and pride. And on the positive side, as the greatest, most amazing example of humility 
and grace. And most New Testament scholars agree that what Paul is doing right here in these verses is quoting one of the church's earliest hymns. Verses 6 through 11 is written in poetic, exalted prose, and many believe it. It was a hymn of the early church. In fact, many believe it was a hymn written by the martyr Stephen. But whatever the case, it is glorious. This statement is glorious. This is a mountaintop statement of truth. It reminds us of the astounding humility and love of God in Jesus Christ and of the fact that all people will one day acknowledge his supreme lordship over all creation. See, the world is actually okay with Jesus being extra humble, extra loving. They're okay with that Jesus. What they are not okay with is the God-man who not only humbled himself, but has been exalted and given the name above every name, the name to which every knee will bow. The world hates that Jesus. The world hates this Jesus that Paul describes here. But, but this is the truth this passage presents, the, the greatest humbling that ever took place and the greatest exaltation that could, could ever be. It is all the Lord Jesus. As we sang this morning, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. What a statement that is. Not only presents this Jesus to us, but it, but it calls to us. It forces us to, to deal with our lives in light of these truths. It calls us to live lives of humility, us to live lives of self-sacrifice, not because that's going to result in us being exalted, but knowing that we have an exalted eternity with this risen king, this one who has been exalted. So this morning, we'll be looking at the first half of this hymn, verses 5 through 8. It really focuses on the humility of Christ in his incarnation his self-sacrifice, his refusal to demand his rights and instead lay them down for the sake of unworthy, undeserving, rebellious sinners, namely, friends, for you and I. Next week, then, we'll deal with this glorious exaltation. But what we see in this passage that we're dealing with this morning in verses 5 through 8 are really seven specific acts of humility in Christ's incarnation. Again, incarnation just means his, his taking on flesh, his becoming a man. So Paul starts in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So, so that's the overarching idea. As we look at these seven steps of humility, Paul is saying, look at what Jesus did, and you be like that. You, you, you be like that. So what's the first thing we see? Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So in order to show us the breathtaking humility of Christ, in order for us to understand exactly what it is, exactly what kind of humility and self-sacrifice Christ has, has done for us, we need to be reminded of exactly who Jesus is. And so he takes us back to eternity past here. This becomes then one of the strongest biblical statements concerning Christ's deity in all of Scripture, one of the strongest statements here. But the point is so that we'll understand who Jesus is as we look at what Jesus did. He says, who though he was in the form of God. This Greek verb here, he was, 
is a strong expression. There's other words Paul could have, have used that just mean to be. This is what you are, but, but this is, is, a, is a strong statement. It describes the very essence of a person. The essence of a person that cannot be changed. It, their unchangeable nature. And so this could read, who being in his unchangeable nature in the form of God. In other words, Paul is saying, let's not forget who we're talking about. Right. I'm going to give you an example now of Jesus Christ becoming a man, but I don't want you to forget who he is, who he has always been. He has always, from eternity past, he will continue for eternity future to exist in the form of God, Paul says. And this word form is a loaded word also. The word is morphe. It, it refers to the outward display of an inner reality. In other words, Jesus existed in eternity past, outwardly displaying his inward divine nature, that he was and is and evermore shall be God. Paul, Paul says this in a different way in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, now, some cult groups take both of these statements, that, that he existed in the form of God and that he is the firstborn among all creation, and, and they, they take these two statements and then they want to act as if the New Testament was written in English and not in Greek. Oh, do you catch that? In the form of God. Ah, the firstborn among all creation, as if it was written in English and, and, and we don't need to know Greek or anything like that in order to understand some of these statements. So they, they twist it and come up with heresy based on that. But as we've just seen, the Greek word Paul uses for form, it doesn't mean that Jesus looked like God but was something less than God. It's just the opposite. The word he uses means he has always been God from eternity past, because it is his very nature. Well, this word, firstborn, of creation is exactly the same. It doesn't mean that Jesus is the first thing that God created. What it means is that he preceded creation and is first over all of it. In other words, what, what Paul's saying is he's the sovereign over all of creation. And so these groups will take these words and present Jesus as something lower than God, but in reality, the, Paul, the language Paul uses here is, is teaching explicitly the opposite. And so, so Paul says here in Philippians 2, this glorious statement that, that he existed in the form of God. John MacArthur in his commentary says, Jesus outwardly manifested an inner reality that he was equally God. He displayed the very nature of God outwardly. And then Paul makes this strange statement in verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so again, we can't rely on our English translations as if the Bible was written in English and then take these words and go, well, there it is. Didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Friends, when you hear people make these claims about Jesus based on these things, you need to know those are ignorant arguments. It doesn't mean the person who's saying them is stupid. It means they are easily falsifiable and this person has wrong information. 
Paul reminds us first of who Jesus really is so that we will be amazed at what Jesus did. If we understand who he is, we will be amazed at what he did. This Jesus, who is eternally God, the second person of the triune Godhead, it's that Jesus who gave up his rights and privileges. It's that Jesus who humbled himself. This is astounding. This is why Christmas is mind-blowingly glorious. God the Son, who made all things by the power of his word, whose glory is infinite, who is holding all things together, who, who, is, who has only in all of eternity received worship and glory and adoration. It's that Jesus who became a bondservant to live for us and to die for us. Paul says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This word equality the Greek word is isos. It means exact equivalent. I'm going to read this from John MacArthur because I would not know this on my own, but it makes sense once I hear it. This word, isos, the word is used in the world of mathematics for an isosceles triangle, a triangle with equal sides. It is used in the field of science for isomers, which are chemicals that differ in certain properties or structure but are identical in atomic weight. So, so Paul is using this word, equality, isos, to, to, to show us that Jesus is distinct in his person from the Father, but is equally, eternally divine. Jesus himself said this about himself in John chapter 5, verse 18. Why is it that the Pharisees wanted Jesus to die? Why, why is it that they wanted to kill him? If Jesus never claimed, and this is the thing people always say, Jesus never even said he was God. That's literally why they killed him, and he said that. John chapter 5, verse 18, this says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. This is the glory of Christ, equal to God the Father Almighty. Having all the rights, all the honors, all the privileges of the divine Godhead, eternally existing in the unimaginable splendor of Almighty God. How does John describe his throne in the book of Revelation? Seated on a sea of glass with lightning flashing around it constantly, the angels crying out and singing, Holy, holy, holy. This Jesus. Paul says, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Gra grasped here, this word, it means clutched. Selfishly taken and held on to. In other words, what Paul is saying is he didn't hang on to his divine rights with a tight fist. That, that, that's what, he didn't clutch at it and take it. The ESV study Bible says he, he didn't hold on to these rights as something to be kept and exploited for his own benefit an advantage. It's a good definition of, of that word, of what Paul's saying. How, how amazing is that? How, how mind-blowing is the humility of Christ, the eternal Son of God, voluntarily surrendering his rights and choosing to be born and to live and to die as a man. It's astounding. He didn't even 
see fit to come to a wealthy family in modern times. That's amazing to me. By the way, that would, if he had come to the wealthiest family living in the world right now, it would have been an infinite condescension to go from the glory of heaven to the wealthiest family on earth would be an infinite humbling. It couldn't hold a candle to it. When you consider all the privilege and honor and glory, he has always, from all of eternity, had as the pre-existing, eternal, equally divine Son of God to become a man at all is infinite. We can't even comprehend the humbling that that was. But more than that, that's, he didn't even do that. He came to be born in a stable, laid in a feeding trough, surrounded by animals and the things that animals do. In a time with no indoor plumbing, to suffer all of the indignities that we suffer as people, to endure all the hardships that we endure, but more, to be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. Second verse 7 goes on, he emptied himself. This, this word, this Greek word for emptied is kino. The, theologians call this emptying of himself the kenosis of Christ, based on this word. Maybe you've heard that expression before. But we need to be precise here in our understanding. What exactly did he empty himself of? What exactly is it that Jesus emptied himself of? Did he empty himself of being God during his incarnation, during his earthly life? Well, this verb, kino, it means to, to empty your hands, to, to perceive whatever it is that you have in front of you as not valuable to you, without value. Every other time it's used in the New Testament, it's used in reference to depriving something of its normal use. And so Paul is using a graphic expression here of Christ's own self-renunciation of his rights, all of his privileges, all of his rights that he has as God. He's voluntarily laying down. He, he's literally giving up his right to act as the sovereign God that he is in his incarnation. What, what does it mean for God to be sovereign? We say this all the time. If, if you remember here, I hope you could just recite this in your head because we say it all the time. God being sovereign means he does what he wants, when he wants, the way he wants, and he never has to ask anyone's permission. Jesus could have he had all authority to and every right to absolutely smash his way through history, didn't he? To just show up and pull rank and call all the shots to do exactly what he's going to do in his next appearance, by the way. He didn't like the weather that day. He could have just changed it. He, he didn't like his physical labor as a carpenter's son. No problem. I'll sit over here and eat a sandwich and just talk to the wood and let it build itself. The wood that I made, by the way. 
He didn't have to deal with one single frustration. If he wanted to, he could, with a word, do anything that he wanted to do. And yet, in his incarnation, he lived a life that was so ordinary that when he finally announced who he was and began his public ministry, his own half-brothers and sisters did not believe him. Because he emptied himself. Because he laid down his rights. This is the kenosis of Christ in his incarnation. Jesus voluntarily depriving himself of the exercise of his full authority. Jesus still had all authority. He deprived himself of the exercise of that authority. Then the third thing in verse 7 as we go on, but he emptied himself taking on the form of a servant. Here's that word again, form. Morphe. Very nature. Essence. He's not just taking on the appearance of a servant. He's taking on the very nature of servanthood. Paul's choice of language in this passage is very precise. Jesus didn't give up his divine nature. He added another nature to his divine nature. So when we talk about the kenosis of Christ, the emptying of Christ, he emptied himself, what it really is is what R.C. Sproul calls subtraction by addition. He didn't become less God. He didn't give up his godness in the incarnation. What he did was add to that true humanness. It was subtraction by addition. One commentary says that his incarnation, Jesus became what he never was, yet never cease to be what he eternally is. He's eternally God. But he added to that something in his incarnation that he had never been before, that is man. What a stunning act of humility. What an amazing... Think of the... the, Can we just be honest this close to Christmas? You have to, because Santa does not approve of dishonesty. I'm just kidding. No, no need to get uptight. Kids, whatever your parents say about Santa, I'm with them. Being a person, a human, is kind of a bummer sometimes, isn't it? I mean, we're made uniquely in the image of God. It is glorious. The angels long to look in on, on the grace that we've been shown by God. There's a lot of glory to this. There's a lot of indignity to this, isn't there? There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. What a stunning act of humility at Christmas time. For the first time in eternity, the pre existing Son of God becomes a human being, and He is now forever both God and man, the God man. That's not all. It's even more shocking that the sovereign Lord of all creation chose to become the lowest class of man. The Greek word is doulos. Most translations say servant. The word literally means slave. He chose to become a slave. A doulos has no personal rights. They live to fulfill the will of their master. They can't just go home when they feel like it. They can't just quit their job and walk off because they're upset and they're not being treated right. A sovereign does what they want, when they want, the way they want, and they never have to ask permission. A slave does what they're told, when they're told, the way they're told. 
And they don't do anything without getting permission. They don't have any rights to anything without their master's permission. No rights, only obligations. Living to please his master. That's what a slave does. To a people who are obsessed with our own rights, Christmas is totally counterintuitive. It's totally backwards. Christ in his incarnation voluntarily renounced his rights. He who is co-equal with God the Father Almighty submitted himself fully to him. Such that Jesus says in John 15, verse 19, just the very next verse from what we read earlier from John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus was the only person to ever walk the face of the earth who had the right to do whatever he wanted to do. To have anything that he wanted to have. It was his by right. And yet he never took advantage of his divine right. He emptied himself. He became a slave. Fourth then, verse 7, continuing on, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. So what we celebrate on Christmas, that God became man. This is an infinite act of humility. Consider the second commandment. The second commandment that forbids us from making any kind of physical representation of God. Why can we not make any physical representation of God? Well, it's because if you try to portray the infinitely glorious, infinite God with anything finite at all, that is exceedingly offensive to God. It is a denigration of his glory. We diminish God's glory if we attempt to make any kind of physical representation of him at all because he is infinite and we are not capable of doing it. But on Christmas, we celebrate the truth that, and and this is totally amazing, God himself took on a finite, weak, tiny human body. The creator became part of creation. And not for this life only, but for eternity. It's astounding. The, the one who holds all things together by the power of his word. The one who spoke Mary's life into existence. The one who created her womb entered into it. Lowered himself to be born as a man. Fifth then, as verse 8 continues, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. See, see, see this humbling that Paul is presenting, just one step after another, after another, after another of, of this. True biblical humility. He humbled himself. True biblical humility, as we saw last week, it's not self-hatred. It's not thinking that you're garbage. It's seeing God for who he is. Seeing his infinite worth seeing his infinite glory, and then understanding yourself in the light of that. Seeing how small you are. Seeing how sinful you are. Seeing how in need of him you are. It's living for the glory of God, putting selfishness to death, 
Counting others is more significant than yourself. But the truth is, Jesus wasn't small. He's, he is God. He is the infinite God. Jesus wasn't sinful. Jesus wasn't needy. This is the all-powerful God the Son we're talking about, Paul has reminded us. So what does humility look like for Jesus? It looked like submission and obedience. That's what it looked like. Jesus couldn't look at the glory of God and then look at himself and go, I'm just a sinner in need of God's grace that needs to color the way I see everything. No. It was submission and obedience. That's what humility looked like. In other words, Jesus humbled himself by obeying. Obeying his Father, his equal. I think most of us are similar in this. If you're in the workplace or you're in some other place and someone who is your, your exact equal starts bossing you around, there's something that rises up in you. How dare you? You think you're better than me? We're equals. Are you kidding? No, Jesus submitted himself to his Father, to his equal. But more than that, he obeyed his inferiors in his earthly life. His parents, who he made. He obeyed those leaders in the synagogue. He, he obeyed the government. And ultimately, we see this as verse 8 continues, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Friends, Christ, death is Christ's enemy. He hates it. He'll destroy it one day. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, Paul says, He, that's Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is God's enemy. It's his great curse. It's, it's the penalty for sin. We die because we are sinners, but Jesus was sinless. He would not have had any need to ever have died, and yet he surrendered his right to immortality. He, he voluntarily clothed himself in the horror of mortality. He willingly died in our place. Jesus says this in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one Speaking of his own life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. He, he, he accepted that great curse, which he had placed upon Adam and all of his descendants because of their sin. And why did he do that? He did it because he was humble. He did it because he was obedient. Death was his father's will. That's what he says here. It was his father's will so that we could be ransomed. We undeserving sinners. He loved God. He loved us. And so he humbled himself even unto death. And then finally, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. It's not just that he humbled himself to the point of death. He submitted to the most heinous, most shameful, most excruciating form of death ever invented by men. In fact, the word excruciating is a word that was invented because there was no word bad enough 
to capture the horror of the cross. So they created a word, excruciating, from the cross. Worse yet, he bore the curse of God. And friend, he did that in our place. There on the cross, God put the sins of every person who ever has or ever will believe the gospel on his perfect, sinless, humble, glorious son. And then he gave Jesus what we deserve, wrath, poured out in full measure, infinite wrath, death. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a Savior. What a God of love and kindness and grace and mercy, infinitely worthy of praise, infinitely worthy of honor and worship, infinitely worthy of our submission. But let's remember, friends, Paul's motivation in telling us these things. He didn't tell us these things so that we would look at Jesus and go, wow, that is amazing. What what an amazing Savior. I should worship this Savior. Of course, that is a big part of the reason he told us, but he tells us explicitly another reason he's telling us. What did verse 5 say? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he tells us all of these things. This is the way we are supposed to live. This is the way, Christian, you are supposed to live. This is the way you are supposed to think. Have this mind in yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, to voluntarily surrender our rights, our preferences, our desires for the glory of God, and for the good of others. This is how we are called to live. And Paul says it's yours. It's yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, if we've been transformed into the likeness of Christ, this will be the direction of our lives. We can examine our lives and see, have I been transformed into the likeness of Christ? Do I have this mind in myself? There's no better time of year than right now to remind ourselves of these truths. This is the call of Christmas, the call of humility. Paul points to Christmas. He points to the incarnation, and he says, this is how you ought to live. This is what God has done for you. The call to dying to self. May we grow in the likeness of our Savior. May we grow in the likeness of our humble King day by day by the power of His Spirit working in us. He says, this is yours in Christ. But we don't just lay back and let it happen to us through osmosis. He says, have this mind in yourselves. We cultivate it. Let's do that. Let's do that, church, by the power of the gospel and the Spirit of God who's in us. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word.